Before we get into this next episode of the Cannabis Diversity Report, I want to give a big thank you and shout out to my friends and sponsors from Forefront Ventures. You can visit their dispensaries, mission dispensaries in Illinois, Massachusetts, Michigan, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. What's up, fam? It's your boy, Tahir Johnson, and we're back with another episode of the Cannabis Diversity Report. Man, um, I couldn't find my keys getting my office at NCIA, so I said, where else can I go? I ran down the street to Howard University, so I'm recording live from Lock Hall. Hopefully, I can call on all the ancestors um, that have been in this building to give me some good energy, but I got my bro, Isak Ali from Howard, I'm sorry, from Ease, I'm in the building to talk about the Momentum Program and everything cool that he's doing over there. Isak, what's going on, bro? I think my's just here, enjoying this uh, Wednesday. All things considered, lots of lots of cool movement happening out there in the industry. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I know it's, it's early in the morning there in California, so mm-hmm. I'm definitely glad to have you here with us, man. Um, you know, you just kicked off the Ease Momentum program, so it's definitely good to have you in the building right now to talk about that. Um, before we get into that, could you just talk a little bit about your background and how you got into the cannabis industry? Totally, yeah. Um, so again, my name's Isak Ali. I was born and raised in Fresno, California. Um, raised in a mixed household. My mother uh, was Colombian. My father, born in India, raised in Pakistan. Um, I was raised in a Muslim household um, post 9-11. I was five years old when 9-11 happened. And that, that, that was a big defining moment in my life. Um, understanding that the world around me affects my personal life and what's going on in my day to day. I grew up in this really conservative um, city that wasn't the most friendly to the Muslim community um, after 9-11. And so this was something that I grew up with, understanding stigma, understanding otherness, understanding that there's a lot of people that might have opinions about you that are going to be wrong. And so I always knew internally that it was important to fight for those people that have been harmed by the system, by people, by whatever is going on out there. And so when I got into college, I decided that it was important that I focused on political science and focused particularly on um, public policy, because in my mind, um, public policy is the, the place that you can really attach change, affect um, in people's day-to-day lives. And so um, I actually started by studying war on terror policy and wrote my thesis on this and discovered a really, really important piece while I was doing my research. And there was a lot of people that continuously told Congress um, in the early 2000s, as we were entering um, kind of like the, 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 the climax of the war on terror, that they said that the war on terror would never end until the war on drugs is over. And that in itself was kind of this like triggering moment for me in my head that like in the United States, war on drug policy is one of our driving global policies. And it was heavily attached to the war on terror policy which was deeply affecting me, my upbringing, and just my identity and my life. And so um, the summer between my junior and senior year in college, I actually studied at a fellowship of the School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, um, focused on supporting um, people of color trying to enter the policy world, which is a very unique uh, program. Uh, Even to this day, I still think it's a very unique and really solid program. So shout out PPIA at UC Berkeley. Um, But during that program, uh, one of our primary projects was to create a policy memo that we were going to send out to one of our senators. And for me, this was 2016. And I was really getting into this movement um, about the war on drugs. And I mean, this was the summer after I just written my thesis, and I was fresh in understanding that the war on drugs was kind of the next front that I wanted to to hit. Um, And so we did a study um, where we wanted to identify um, the difference between, the primary difference between decriminalization and legalization. And the thesis being that decriminalization continues to allow for discrimination of black and brown folks 
and just any marginalized community. Um, and so what we wanted to focus on was how can you take two different counties in California with two very different political viewings? So we saw Fresno, California, and we saw Alameda, California. Fresno being this relatively well-known conservative bastion in California and Alameda, which is known as kind of like the liberal bastion of California. And so we wanted to compare, like how does decriminalization affect uh, people of color, minorities, marginalized folks? And what we discovered was that in a county like Alameda, which has Berkeley, Oakland, a lot of these really, really diverse neighborhoods, that you are three times more likely to be stopped and searched and arrested and convicted if you were black or brown in Alameda. And then when you look at Fresno, California, where I was from, you were close to six times more likely to be stopped, searched, prosecuted. And so what this really showed me was that even in a decriminalized world, you can still have vastly different effects on people. And so that's why I think legalization is so important because legalization comes down to um, destigmatizing the plant and coming down to education. Like we need to be able to teach people what this plant can properly do and try and change this narrative that is as cannabis had always been used as a tool of the oppressor. Now that it's legalized, there's this slight different opportunity where we can use it as a tool for economic empowerment. And that's where I come from. I think of cannabis as a tool for economic empowerment. Um, and that is, in my opinion, one of the, 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 the most important things that the cannabis industry really needs to recognize is that there's no other industry that exists that had the level of, of stigmatization, of criminalization, and of honestly just, just straight up discrimination on people. And so when this industry was built, it, 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 was, it, it became very obvious the problems with the growth of the industry. There's so many people that were harmed by the war on drugs, but none of them were reaping the benefits of legalization. And so that's kind of where, like, that's kind of a long story short of where I come from, is that like, this is a brand new industry. And when we think of innovation, like innovation shouldn't just be the newest and greatest technology. It needs to be the newest and greatest programs that are supporting people. And I think, that's where the cannabis industry can truly be innovative. It's great to see new ways of getting high. Don't get me lie. Don't get me wrong. Like, I think that's pretty cool. But what it comes down to is, is the, the tool of what the industry can do. And that is really like just putting money directly into the pockets of families and people that are trying to support their families and communities. And that's something that I truly love about it. Yeah. And so how with um, that passion that you had um, for that topic, how did you find yourself at East? Yeah. So interestingly enough, um, my my last year of college, I, I started doing a lot of research for people. I was just interested generally, like I would just sit and just research the cannabis industry. Um, and I got connected with a friend of mine who um, was founding a company out um, in the Midwest. I worked there for a couple months. My last year of college, I, I had been doing just a lot of just market research for them, just sitting and just reading, really. Like people would email me questions and I would send them answers. And just literally as simple as that. And just through that process, I just learned so much about the ins and outs of the industry and kind of what was going on. So after working for their year and after graduating college, um, I thought it was it, it was time to see what, what was next. This was This was a business that was really early, really just starting at the time. And, and Ease, in contrast, was just starting to become um, a, a pretty well-known name. This was back in 2017. Um, and so after college, I moved out to San Francisco and I, I, I met people from Ease. I, I had talked to them at parties, at, at social gatherings, at cannabis industry events. And honestly, like kind of pitched myself. I told them what I'd been doing, what, what, what my interests were, and I interviewed. And interestingly enough, I actually started on, uh, on the growth and analytics team, which is more of like the math and science part of like growth and expansion. But I was actually originally hired to uh, focus on territory expansion. 
So sitting and reading laws, just literally just each and every day I was sitting and reading each different jurisdiction's cannabis laws, just to see is it viable as, as, a, as an option for growth for the business. So, so actually like six weeks into working at the company, I moved from the growth and analytics team onto the legal team um, between the transition of 27 to 2018. So we could build out our compliance programs. And for anyone that is from California and may remember, the regulations for California dropped like four weeks before the end of the year. So we had about a month to overhaul an entire business model. And this was something the entire industry had to deal with. Don't get me wrong. This wasn't just us. Um, but that, that, that was a huge overhaul. And so um, I sat down for literally over a year just sitting and reading local regulations in California. I've read over 450 cities laws here. I've read over, I mean, probably 10 to 20 different state laws. Um, and so a year and a half on the legal team taught me one really, really big glaring issue in the industry, the inequity of access to legal resources. And how is a small business owner supposed to build a business in the most regulated industry with no resources and no legal support? And so while I was doing a lot of this research for ease, I was also given the purview to help support the community. They said, hey, you want to do this? Do it. And so I spent some time just supporting some of the small businesses in Oakland, in the East Bay, um, down in LA, just doing what the regular compliance reading that I was doing for ease was, was something that was valuable for other people. And so I created little guides. I did phone calls with people just to kind of help them through that. And uh, I, think, I think through that project and through doing a lot of that, like my passion was unlocked inside me where I was like, all right, well, I wanna do this support stuff full time. I wanna be out here and help the community that has um, been, been harmed for so long. And Ease as a business is well known, is, a, is almost a household name. And I was like, there's ways that we could marry the, 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 the value and the, the, the brand that Ease has and help build out these social equity and social impact programs to help support our immediate community. And so in March of 2019, I ended up moving one more time in the company over to the social impact team um, to work with Jennifer Lujan, our, our director of social impact in building out Momentum, um, which was a, a really, really fun project. And, and I'll, I'll leave it at that for now, but uh, right. that's yeah, kind of like yeah, the, the, the saga. Yeah, because I don't want you to get into momentum too much yet. But I guess since you did, since we started talking about ease a little bit, um, for people that may not know and may not be aware of it, um, that are maybe outside the cannabis industry or maybe in a market that you guys don't operate in, could you talk a little bit about what ease is and, and what the company's business model is? Yeah, so so ease a, is a delivery platform that delivers legal and compliant and regular regulated cannabis from a dispensary to a um, to a, an end use customer and um, right now we're, we're we're operating in california grew out of the bay area starting in san francisco the east bay and originally we were just a tech platform that was i think one of the biggest defining things about the e about ease was that we were this tech platform and so a lot of people kind of saw us as this hybrid within the cannabis industry. So at the very beginning of um, my, my, my stint at Ease, there was almost this awkwardness about how people felt about Ease in the industry. And I think that was one of the main, uh, one of the most important things about why I think Ease is doing a really good job about going out there and supporting the community. Because at the beginning, even though a lot of people tried to deny us the, the fact that we were a cannabis industry business, um, a lot of people kind of tried to shy, shy us away from that. And we wanted to double down on that. And a lot of that was doubled down in our social impact efforts that were focusing on supporting these communities. But, but anyway, um, but now we are more of a vertically integrated operation where we, we work with, um, with dispensaries, that uh, we work with uh, with distributors, we work with different brands that are all kind of within this ecosystem um, that, uh, 
that, that is almost kind of a self-contained system um, for delivery for people. And so uh, I think I'll, call, I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that because the, the primary idea is that we're, we're, we're trying to do delivery. And I think the, the important part of the business model that I really want to focus on is that as we've been able to start our vertical integration is that we started having a lot more control of the network, which means that we were able to do a lot more with integrating our social equity and social impact efforts into our actual business model. So I think one of the important things that's, that, that really came out of this summer was this idea of systemic change within organizations, within industries. And that was something that Ease really wanted to take seriously. When we were looking at our business model and we saw that we were starting to vertically integrate and that we were able to start making more concrete decisions as to what was going to be on the menu, what brands we wanted to work with, there was a really big push to say, we need to center a lot of this around social equity and social equity businesses. And so we actually launched a social equity carousel um, not too long ago that features over 10 social equity brands here in California, four of which came from the Momentum cohort, which I think is a really, really big deal. And not that long after launch, we've already done over $2 million in sales off of this, this particular carousel, which is one of like 15 different carousels on the Ease menu. And I think that in itself really shows that this is something that consumers want. People want equitable cannabis. And in, in a time like this during a pandemic where, where delivery is truly the safest option for people, that it's really, it, it makes pe people feel really good that they can get social equity weed delivered to their door. And that's something that is really satisfying to me, honestly. Right. Yeah, man. And, and to talk about um, California, the California cannabis market a little bit more, I know I've heard some criticism and some praise depending on who you ask and when you ask them. Uh, but could you talk a little bit more about, um, you know, what's your take on the existing social equity programs and California's cannabis market in general? Yeah, so I, I, would, I, would, I would start by saying this. Um, the social equity leaders in the major cities in California are truly on the front lines of changing this industry, and in my opinion, changing the world. So on the ground, I, I wanna start by recognizing that there's a lot of really solid, really passionate community organizers and social equity advocates that are focusing on social equity in California. With that said, um, I think there is a really, really big deficit in um, the whole legalization movement in California that there, was that there was no social equity written in at the state level. Um, this is something that is continuing to be debated in different states. I mean, we had five states legalize after this last election cycle, and you can already see the holdups in certain states about passing regulations, because if social equity isn't included, then a lot of people don't want that to pass. And so California being kind of like the cultural hub of cannabis, there is a huge loss that the state did not create any sort of social equity licensing structure, any sort of mandate at the state level. Um, so it, it's kind of a piecemeal approach in the same way that a lot of the regulations are done. And I think this is one of the biggest issues that we face constantly in the cannabis industry is that like there's, there, there's, there's not enough agreement in this idea that cannabis needs to be legalized that you still see a lot of states and a lot, or sorry, a lot of cities and local jurisdictions that are banning. And so kind of in the inverse, in the same way, um, it has to be local jurisdictions that are building out social equity programs. And so we have five social equity programs that have been built out of different cities in California. A lot of the folks that build, built out those programs actually sit on the Momentum Advisory Board. So they were imperative in helping us build out the Momentum program, which I think is really important to recognize as well. Um, and so to that point, I think, I think California is on the cusp of just starting to figure out what social equity means for this industry, because we're about two years, we're about to wrap up on two years of legalization being, um, being kind of the, the status quo in California. And all, in my opinion, the trend has been moving towards more towards social equity. At the beginning, it was all about 
the big brands and the big companies that were getting like large VC um, injections of money. But now you kind of see the shift that after we went through the recession in the cannabis industry in 2019, that a lot of the large businesses either consolidated or they, they fell. And what you saw was this, this focus on social equity businesses start to emerge. And so when we launched Momentum at the end of last year, it was almost the perfect timing as like really building out this launch pad for social equity in California, because Ease as a business, we, we operate pretty much almost all the way up and down California. And so we thought that it was important that we enter the space of social equity and social impact. Granted, we've been doing it for a few years already, but now was the time to really double down on it and build out a really solid program, which was, again, going back to momentum constantly. Um, but um, what it comes down to is that like, the, the fact of the matter is, is that there, there's, there's so little mandate coming from governments, from the state, from cities, that I think we're starting to hit a point that it's important that private businesses really enter the social impact and social equity space. Because if we really want to build a sustainable industry, and the trends are moving towards social equity and social impact programs and businesses and away from the large scale, like massive operations that, that, that it's important that private businesses get involved. And if you want to operate in multiple different states, or if you want to operate even within your own state, I, I, I highly recommend that businesses focus and start thinking about how they want to support their communities because at the end of the day, like what's the point in, in, in legalizing this plant and selling this plant and in, in being involved in the industry if you ignore a lot of, of the history of it? And so, I mean, here I am as a call to action to any cannabis business that's listening, build out a social impact program, build out social equity into your business model, change those systems within your business model that make it more inclusive for people because I mean, you can't just legalize the drug. You have to legalize the drug dealers. You can't, you can't just decide that like we're going to plant, we're going we're gonna to make this plant legal, but only these people can sell it who have never been stigmatized or involved in it at all. And I find that really weird. And so honestly, I'm really proud that Ease has, has, has decided to make this really big step forward. And honestly, I feel honored to be one of those people to help create these programs and be intimately involved in the whole thing. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing, honestly. Right. Yeah, man. And I, I think it's so important, man. I, I love what you said about like the need to break down that stigma and make sure that people are involved. Right. And even before we started, before we got live on the show, we were talking a little bit about that stigma and how in our different communities that can keep us from actually mm -hmm. even approaching the industry. Right. Um, I listened to the podcast that you did with with the homie Samar mm -hmm. um, talking about his cannabis haram. Um, you know, talk about a little bit like what that stigma may have been like for you growing up in a Muslim household and how were you able to break that to like approach the cannabis industry? Totally. Um, I think, I mean, at the beginning growing up, as always, it's always weird. Um, I mean, cannabis was something that I wasn't super intimately involved with at, a, at, at too, too young of an age. So, but it was something I was always surrounded by. It was something that was really prevalent. I saw it in, at my high school, saw it at my middle school. I mean, saw it with friends that I was around in Fresno. Um, and, and, and so the stigma to me was knowing that like, or this idea that I didn't need anything to, to have fun or to, 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 to clear my head or anything like that. And I think growing up Muslim really taught me that there's at the end of the day, like intentionality is probably one of the most important things when it comes to any of your actions, anything like that. And so, I mean, growing up, it wasn't necessarily the most embraced thing in my family. Um, but I mean, and this, this is to get a little bit more personal. I mean, when I was 18, my mom passed away and it was something that really hit our family it was, it was it was i mean for lack of a better term it was it was it was a family trauma that we were dealing with and i have a brother who is involved in the, the psychedelic in uh, psychedelic the psychedelic movement legalization movement he works for an organization called maps and so he already has this very academic and very scientific understanding of how plant medicine works generally 
And I think that was kind of the beginning of the breaking of the stigma in my family that like we're in, 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 in Western medicine, we're inundated with pharmaceuticals and medicine that, I mean, you watch a commercial and like the first 10 seconds of the commercial is what it's supposed to do good for you. And the last 50 seconds of the commercial are the negative side effects. And so as our family started really exploring and doing more research and understanding about just plant medicine in general, you start to understand that a lot of these things were, were our, our, our traditions that are passed down from our ancestors, that these are, these are indigenous medicines that have existed longer than the Western pharmaceutical industry has existed. And so that I think in itself really changed the perspective for a lot of people in my family that, that um, if we're willing to put all of these different medicines and my mom who was going through cancer treatment had to go through chemotherapy, which is something that's not easy on your body at all. And so like with all of these different things happening, every, I think most of our family started to recognize that like plant medicine is the safer alternative. And when you come from a harm reduction perspective, you want the safest alternative possible. And so when it came to something like cannabis later on in my life, particularly in college where I was studying really hard, I was in the honors program at Fresno State, I was really stressed out. Antidepressants weren't something that ever interested me. And any other pharmaceuticals were always something that I didn't really feel comfortable with. And cannabis was something that, although it was stigmatized and illegal, after trying it and figuring it out that this is a tool for my relaxation, for my decompression, in a safe manner, um, I started to feel more comfortable with it. And I started seeing that, I was like, wow, this needs to be advocated for. Like people need to understand that this isn't harmful. There's, there's always this joke, the, the, the most harmful thing about cannabis is getting caught with it. It's not smoking it, it's getting caught with it. It's that whole stigma around that. And so, I mean, as I grew older, I think it became very clear to my family and to my dad and just like people in the Muslim community that my intention for working at a business like these and doing the work that I do is about supporting the community, is about harm reduction, is about creating safe alternatives for people that don't necessarily want plant medicine or sorry, don't want um, Western medicine. And so this, I think, is a safe alternative for people and, that, and, and, and given that, that's something I'm willing to advocate for. And I think in that sense, my family has also recognized that like, we're out here trying to change the world for good. I'm not here just trying to sell you weed. I'm here to tell you that cannabis can change people's lives and it can change people's communities. And you can already see the growth. I mean, going again, I don't wanna always have to constantly go back to momentum, but like, there are businesses that went through the Momentum program last year that I see that are directly working in their own communities, supporting local organizations, um, organizing volunteer opportunities. And so you can see it at almost the micro level that if you're, if you're supporting 10 small businesses, these 10 small businesses are then gonna go and support their 10 communities. And, and with that kind of pay it forward mentality, you can really proliferate the change. And, 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 and these are really like long-term thoughts and big ideas, but like that's kind of the way you have to think about the cannabis industry. You can't think about it as like one, two, three years at a time. Like this is something that you have to be looking at for 10, 20 years down the line. Like 20 years from now, I wanna see all the people that have been harmed by the war on drugs properly uh, compensated for everything that they have to deal with but those are things that you can't there's no turnkey solution for that you can't just say oh this is legal now everything is fine and so as long as there isn't like a state mandate or any sort of like um like mandate to 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 create this change it's it's literally on the industry to do it themselves and and i mean the industry is driven by business and you, you start, you're starting to see the change of the business trends move towards social equity, social impact. You see all these states that are going live, even though at the state level, sometimes they aren't creating social, uh, social equity programs. At the city level, you're starting to see cities say, 
we're only going to provide certain licenses to social equity, or we're only going to prioritize them for a few years. And so there's, there's like two sides of it. You're seeing true movement and you're seeing some stagnation. And so again, like it comes down to the industry, like it's on us to do the change, to make that change. Right. And so you just talked a little bit about the impact of like social equity on a city or state level. And of course, we have um, the Moore Act, which, which, which could potentially get a house, a vote in the house um, this week, right? Um, could you talk, and you, you touched on like the difference between um, legalization and decriminalization. Mm -hmm. Could you just talk a little bit about, from your perspective, what do you think the impact of the Moore Act could be on the industry? If it, if it does pass through the House and in the Senate and become so, so just a quick reminder, the MORE Act is focused more on decriminalization, correct? Yes. Yeah, it's like descheduling. Yep, descheduling. Yeah, so interestingly enough, I think at the federal level, it, it, it almost makes sense in that, in, in, in a case like this, uh, particularly because the MORE Act also does include social equity provisions inside it, which are primarily focused on like expungement, and, um, and, and supporting people that have kind of already gone through the criminal justice system. Um, so I think that is really important. Um, part of me is very interested in seeing how the actual rollout is, because I'm interested to see how the federal government is willing to approach the issue. Because the way that we've seen it at the state level isn't necessarily wrong, but it's within constantly within the constraints of what like a state government is used to or a local government is used to. So for example, um, when the BCC created their advisory committee to help advise on, on the regulations, a lot of the people that sat on that board, I mean, granted you, you had a lot of really important people from labor, from, from social equity and cannabis and like, uh, and, and people that were focused on the, on the medical side of cannabis. But you also just saw a lot of people that were focused on just highly regulated industries. And so one of the issues was that when legalization happened, people immediately treated it as a highly regulated industry. That what other highly uh, regulated industries are there? Alcohol, tobacco, gas, oil, coal. So you, it, it gets lumped into this really weird um, regulatory perspective that like, oh my gosh, when we legalize it, we have to overregulate it before it hurts anyone. And so at the federal level, I don't necessarily see um, descheduling to be the wrong approach because I, my fear would be that if you legalize it at the federal level, it will immediately be encroached by regulation. And as we're starting to see more states legalize, we're at about 15 states with adult use. That's not, that's, we're, we're still a, a good amount away from half the states having created their own adult use ordinances. And so as long as the federal government is willing to really listen to the states that have built out their programs, not just highly regulated industry people or people that are trying to regulate a new industry, um, I think it could, it, it, it could be pulled off well. And, and, and I think this comes down to a, a primary theme of how I think about cannabis. Cannabis, any, any movement in the policy space around cannabis has to be bottom up. It can't be top down because for the longest time it's been top down. That has been criminalization. It has this its own stigma of harming communities. And so I think like even though in a state like California where we saw something an, an issue with decriminalization, um, I think the federal level would have a different approach because the states will have their own different way of figuring things out. And even though we're not seeing the conversations about how I don't know like uh missouri or like south dakota wants to create adult use regulations i think removing the federal illegalization in itself can 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 help uh what's going on in the ground at the state level so for me i more want to see the federal government restrict or remove restrictions on state governments and allow communities to build out these programs from the bottom up Right, and it's interesting because the Moore Act still still doesn't have like a regulatory structure attached to it. Mm -hmm. um, here at NCIA last year, we actually wrote a great white paper. If you're out there listening, you should check it out. Um, we proposed what a regulatory structure um, post-legalization might look like. Um, and interestingly enough, 
the World Health Organization also made an announcement this morning that they rescheduled cannabis. So we're starting to see a shift globally mm-hmm. um, in like the way this is viewed. And like you said, it, it is important because it is medicine and, and cultures all over the world. If we think about like in earlier times before they decided that they wanted to make it illegal um, for reasons that that involved racism and economics and things like that, we're now starting to see the shift go back. So it's just mm-hmm. interesting. No, I think it's really interesting. And I'm curious to see what the global movement is going to start being around this as well. Because as you mentioned, who had, had, had mentioned it? And one thing that was really interesting to me that I learned from our cohort in the Momentum program last year is we had, we had a, a participant, she's a PhD scientist, and I was asking her about just research in the cannabis industry. And it, it, there's, this, there's this idea that like research doesn't exist that there's not enough research. And that's true in the United States, like because of scheduling and because of uh, criminalization, there hasn't been that level of research. But if you look at other countries, I mean, if you look at South America, if you look at Europe, like they've done studies on cannabis. And so you're starting to see this this global shift towards um, a different perspective, maybe not legalization yet, because that's something that I think still almost has to be done by the United States before anyone else really like takes a hold of it. Cause I think in that sense, the United States is kind of a policy leader in that. We started the illegalization, we gotta finish it. <laughs> exactly, and I mean, we, I mean, yeah, exactly. And so like, there's that whole issue around it. And so like, I love seeing the shift of, of like global policies around this. I think it's important that the United States takes the leadership role to say, hey, like, we messed up. And I think that's, the, that's really important. I think it needs to be acknowledged that this was bad policy. Like, it, it was bad policy. It hurt so many people. And so it's important that that is recognized and that something has changed. And so when it comes to, like, what has been proposed at the federal level, honestly, the MORE Act is arguably one of the, the, the best options because it focuses more on um, the, the decriminalization and focuses a lot on, on, the, uh, on the expungement of people that have been hurt. And so I, I think going back to like a, a point that I want to make around policy is that policy, these policies have to be centered around those harmed by the war on drugs before even the industry is considered. Like the industry will always be a driving force in all cannabis policy but it has to be centered around social equity and social impact. Right, and a, th- and a constant theme that you've said a number of times is that the responsibility isn't just on the government, it's mm-hmm. also on these private businesses to like to, to do something about it. You're in an industry that's making billions of dollars while the people who have been largely criminalized for this don't have an opportunity to be in. So it is great to see companies like E stepping up with the momentum program um, talk a bit about, I know this is the second year of the program. Who mm-hmm. are some of the people that went through the program the first year? Um, and even like the, I know, like you said, you have the carousel of social equity brands um, that people can pick up. Who are some of the brands that are in that? Yeah, so some of the brands, um, Dreamt, which creates a fantastic sleep product that really, really works. It doesn't just say sleep on it, it works. Um, we have New Life based out of Oakland. Um, we have James Henry based out of Oakland. Um, and those are, those are the three primary brands that have been launched. We have a few more that are slowly getting, um, getting prepped to be on the platform. So I think it's, that that's really cool. Um, focusing on the cohort itself, um, this year it was pretty heavily focused on the Bay area. We had a participant from LA, we had a participant from Portland. Um, but I think what was really interesting that this last cohort showed was that one, a lot of the, 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 the businesses and folks that were ready to be in a program like Momentum came from the Bay Area because the Bay Area uh, is, is one of the pioneers in social equity in cannabis in California. And so what, what was interesting was that we were able to see just from how the cohort ended up being selected was that this particular region was doing something right. That they were doing, and this isn't to say any other regions were doing anything wrong, but this is to say that Oakland did a really good job of figuring out how to truly support the small businesses that were looking to grow. 
So I thought that that, that was something that was really cool um, about last year's cohort. I think another really interesting thing that I really appreciated about last year's cohort was the amount of camaraderie that they they showed each other. The moment we stepped into the first room together to have our first orientation, not one person in there looked at another participant as a competitor. Everyone saw each other as a community, as an industry that was growing together, as businesses that were growing together. And I think that is a very different perspective that you see within the social equity community that you don't see within the general business community. Business generally is always focused on competition. How can we grow and how can we be bigger than the next person? How can we sell more than the next person? How can we do anything around that? What this cohort showed was that they could build almost their own ecosystems together. There were distros in there that were starting to do distro for brands in there. There were retailers in the cohort that started carrying them on each other on their shelf. And they started building out almost their own micro community within the Momentum cohort to help support each other. And that's something that I think is really important going back to what I was saying earlier about paying it forward, is that when you're supporting small businesses, they are really, really likely to go out and immediately support their community and the small businesses that they work with. And I think that's one of the really cool things of what, what we showed last year was that creating a program like this isn't going to just be out here to, to create more competition in the industry. It's actually to grow the industry together. And I think that's something that gets forgotten a lot. We're growing an entire industry together. Like we're two years in in California. I mean, we're what, like six years in in any state legalizing cannabis uh, for, for adult use generally. We're still in a brand new industry. The fact that people are constantly focusing on pure growth against competition is like, I think, a little short-sighted because you need to be focusing on your own growth, obviously, but there's an entire industry being grown around us. And we have to grow each other in ourselves before we can be fighting each other. If not, what's the point? What's the point in growing? And I, th I, and I think that was what last year's cohort really showed us, that like this industry is building together and you put the right people together and they will make magic, honestly. Yeah, man. And I've, I've experienced the same thing with the social equity scholarship program that we do here. Um, and that's the, I, I, I constantly say the same thing. When you look at the industry, like us minorities as black and brown people that are trying to make our way in this industry, we're not each other's competition and we're mm -hmm. so much stronger together. And I love seeing that collaboration, like when people can connect, like somebody from California where you got OGs that have been in the game for a while, like when they can connect with somebody from Illinois or Massachusetts that wants to learn the industry, it really just makes us all better and stronger in building that community, man. Um, and it, another thing that's super dope, I know you guys have launched and take the program nationally um, this year. So like, what are, what are some of the, you know, what are you expecting from that and how's it going so far? And, and how can people, um, you know, get enrolled in the program? I guess, talk a little bit about that. Totally, yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, please, anyone who's listening, visit ease.com slash momentum. We have our applications open there. Um, applications are open until December 15th. You can find all the information on the program there. Um, uh, but what I think national expansion shows us is that one, mo most importantly, I think, is that we prove the concept of what the first year was trying to do. We were just, we were trying to show that with proper resources, with the right intention behind building out a program, you can truly build out something really powerful. And so we were able, we, we, we really saw that with the first year. Um, and so what we saw was that it's important to start thinking about this outside of our immediate home, our immediate markets, because again, as I had mentioned, we're building an entire industry. We're not just building ourselves. And so when we were looking to start expanding nationally, it was because we wanted to share the benefit of what a program like this can do to folks in Michigan, to folks in New Jersey, both of which are about to go online. Michigan is just starting to build out their social equity programs. So folks that are trying to enter their social equity programs, I highly recommend to apply for Momentum. Anyone who is trying to enter their state's industry 
and there is some sort of social equity program, even if there is no social equity program, again, we're not looking for people that are social equity verified. We're looking for underrepresented entrepreneurs, people that have been harmed by the war on drugs that are trying to enter the industry. And so we, we don't want to attach any sort of license or social equity licensing, um, a designation to it or anything. We're out here to support people. And so again, like what I think national expansion showed us is that this is something that needs to be tested out nationwide now. Like we, we, we figured out what can work here. I mean, we're still constantly um, tweaking things and building new things and like researching new, new methods and working with new people. Um, but, but what we wanna do now is, 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 is make, make this a national movement because we want to center it around social equity. Again, it, it, it always comes down to the idea of what social equity is and the, the, the fact that it is the centerpiece of the industry. As I had mentioned, like we're seeing states that are going live with their regulations and they're forgetting that social equity is the probably the most important thing that should be included in there. And so again, like it's the responsibility on private businesses that want to enter any new market to be supporting that community before entering that market. And so we want to make sure that we're expanding from a social equity and a social impact perspective, first and foremost. And I think that's something that is probably incredibly unique in the industry. Anyone who's trying to enter new markets is literally doing it for pure market growth perspectives in many cases. And, and and the approach that we take is that we want to enter new, any new market, any new state from a community development perspective, from a social equity, social impact perspective. And so that's when I see what like national expansion means to me, to me, it, it means that we're able to just nationally expand our reach for social equity programs. And even if it's not about, it's not just about um, people getting into the program and applying for the program, it's for people that are observing these programs to say, hey, I can do this too. Like I like to see other people build out their accelerators in their state or their local jurisdiction or their community, that at the end of the day, that's what I, I want to see. I want to see people inspired. I want people to see that like we we're able to prove a concept that if you support people and you do it for the right reasons create a program with intentional purpose behind it, that you can see the results of the business and the community development and all of those things come together. And it doesn't have to be at the scale of something like momentum, it can be smaller scale. But I just think that everyone needs to, honestly needs to include social impact work in their business model. It's gonna be, the, it's gonna be like the, the, the theme of long-term growth in my opinion. Absolutely. And, and to your point, um, ease is, I mean, it's, you guys have been an inspiration for me because when I, I've been in the cannabis industry for about two years now. I mean, when I first started researching the industry about what it was, you guys were one of the first like larger companies or brands that I knew about. And shout out to my homegirl, Sydney Snow, like my homegirl, Sydney, um, used to work at ease. And so she was like one of the, like one of the first cannabis actually industry people I ever met. So mm -hmm. um, definitely appreciate the work you guys are doing over there. Um, what are you. some of the benefits that people get when they're in the momentum program? Totally. Yeah. So we, we, we focus on like um, three primary areas of support. And I think this is really important because in a lot of cases, um, a lot of social equity programs, social impact programs that get built out only focus on one thing. And, and, and even though that that's not necessarily a negative, um, th there's something wrong with that. But what, what we wanted to prove with Momentum is that you need a multi-pronged approach for support. So what does that look like? We provide participants with a $50,000 grant where we don't take any equity in the business. And I think that's a really important piece to, to focus on because this proves, and this really, this, this, this is for us to show that we're not, trying to create this program to make money off of anyone. We're out here to support people. And so what these grants do is put money directly into their pockets, which pretty much goes directly into their business, into the growth of their business and helping hiring people, helping with their build out, helping them even create their first batch of their product, something like that. 
So we, we take the money approach of providing them with a $50,000 grant. In, in, uh, in addition to that, we do 12 weeks of business-focused curriculum taught by different industry experts. So um, once the program actually commences in early 2021, every Tuesday we'll be meeting to have webinars where we will have different industry leaders talking about different parts of the of business from PR and marketing to branding to building out financial structuring to regulatory compliance, insurance, HR, like really basic business things. Because one of the things that's really interesting about cannabis that's really difficult is that as you probably know, and as many people know, a lot of ancillary businesses aren't willing to work with cannabis, but you still need a bank, you still need insurance, you still need all of these services. And so one of the things that's a huge benefit of the Ease ecosystem is that we have found businesses that provide these ancillary services. And so they are able to help provide these in turn to the cohort as well. And so throughout those 12 weeks, um, they're getting taught from, by, by, by teachers, they're getting presented um, free softwares or like opportunities for technologies for their business and things like that. Um, and then lastly, we have uh, mentorship. And so last year we had over 40 people from the EASE team um, volunteer their time to mentor uh, the 10 participants in this program. So what that looked like is that we paired EASE mentors with, um, with individuals in the program and kind of, kind of um, sat in as liaisons at, to, to the EASE ecosystem. So for example, if there was a participant that needed some support with creating, let's say, a social media marketing plan. And they were able to talk to their mentor and the mentor was able to figure out where within the ease ecosystem we could kind of fill in that blank for them and help support them. And I think that was really important because like building out those connections for people out of this massive ecosystem that we've built is I think one of the biggest benefits is, is bringing them into this ecosystem, into this family. Um, and in addition to um, having ease mentors, we also had investor mentors. So we actually had investors that were interested in supporting social equity um, themselves um, be partnered one-on-one -on -one with some of these businesses to help them build out their pitch deck tell them this is how you present in front of a room of for a full of investors because in, in in many cases like people that are building out their cannabis businesses have never had to pitch what they're doing and so teaching them about this other world that exists in the industry is kind of helping bridge the gap between um, like the VC world that has emerged in cannabis and like the true OG cannabis. And so that's something that I think you see a really cool melding of throughout this program. Um, and then we conclude with a demo day for investors. And so um, last year we had a bit of a hiccup because we originally had our demo day scheduled for March 12th down in LA and March 11th was the day the NBA canceled their season. Tom Hanks announced that he had coronavirus. And so we ended up having to cancel right before, um, which was a huge bummer, but we were able to pivot to create an online pitch day. So we ended up having an online pitch day back in May um, that allowed these businesses to present themselves to, I think we had, I mean, close to 50 investors involved in there. We had over 400 people viewing the actual event. Um, so there's almost the silver lining that we got kind of more exposure from it because we ended up throwing it online. Um, but that, that, that's kind of like to wrap up the program, we, we, we end with an investor pitch day. The idea is at the beginning of the program, you are on the cusp of growth. And by the end of the program, you are on a rocket ship to growth. And so those are the things that we're really trying to go for. Um, and, and, and I think that demo day in, in some respect really allows for them to, to present themselves in a way that they're not used to and provide them that exposure. Um, and, and I think that level of empowerment is really important. And I think for me personally, one of my goals for Momentum um, as just a, a last added benefit is that you feel empowered. To, to really pursue yourself. You've been validated by Ease, one of the largest cannabis marketplaces in the largest cannabis market. And 
you, you, you've been validated by the network. You've been validated by the ecosystem that is just this massive group in the industry. And I think that in itself is empowering. And, and, and that's something that any participant in this program should really hold dear and close that you're valid, what you're doing is real, and like we're here to support you. I agree. And I, I think that, that, that those things that you're actually providing them are so important. Um, because like I, I was an investment advisor before I came to cannabis. So I realized how much of a problem that access to capital is mm -hmm. learning how to pitch investors, getting that confidence about just your product, what you're doing, right. And getting access to the relationships. How can I get my stuff on a platform like ease that is nationally known? So you guys are doing great work. And I, and I'll tell you, ease is lucky to have somebody like you, who's really about it, that's passionate about this. Like not only the background in policy, but you you bring so much passion to it, um, you know. So I, like I said, they're they're really lucky to have somebody like you running this type of program, man. I appreciate um, it, and honestly, I'm lucky to work with people like you because I mean, just the conversations that we had. I mean, this is just one of many conversations that we had. Right. Like, I love working with people like you because we're we're out here trying to change the world. Like, we're trying to make action to change the world, and. And we're, we're, I think we're blessed to be in an industry that is providing us that vehicle to do it. And so, I mean, I thank you as well. Yeah, man. And it's dope. It's dope getting to have these types of conversations in a public way, you know, mm -hmm. with the world. Because like what my homegirl Margot said when I first started the show, she's like, you're really just talking to your friends. And I was like, I am. And because yeah. like, that's what it's about. And because we can impact them. We, we, us having this conversation impacts another Tahir, another ESEC to say, mm -hmm they can see somebody that looks like us that can do it and they could be a part of the industry too. And that's what it's all about. Exactly. I echo that statement fully. <laughs> yeah, man. And just to touch on that a little bit more, man, I, it was something that we, we talked about before we got on the show. Um, but first, um, like Isak is a, is a biblical name, right? Mm -hmm. I know it's a, it's a, so, and of course my name Tahir um, means pure and my middle name means eternally blessed. Um, and one of the things that we talked about was how you're just now getting to the point where you feel comfortable, like making sure that people say it correctly. Mm -hmm. It's something that I that I struggle with sometimes experiencing myself, right? Like when I worked in finance, when I was at Morgan Stanley, somebody told me you should go by Ty. And I was like, no, I'm not. I was like, that's not my name. And people get it wrong most of the time. Most people say to hear or, or some other like, you know, messed up version of it. Um, and it wasn't until one of the OGs, Kershid Koja, earlier this year, was like, you need, to, I'm, you need to tell people to say your name correctly. And if mm -hmm. you don't, I'm going to tell them. How did you get to that place where you felt comfortable um, doing that? Um, you know, especially with everything. I know you said early on, you realized like kind of the stigma, like being young when 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. like, how did you get comfortable walking in your own skin and just making it be a part of who you are? Totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think it, it comes down to hype how my name is spelled and how I pronounce it. So like my name is spelled I-S-H-A-Q, which is um, like phonetic to how you would say it in Arabic. You would pronounce the H, it's hot in Arabic. Um, but I grew up in a mixed household. So I grew up in um, speaking Spanish actually. And in Spanish, the name is Isaac. And that's how I grew up always pronouncing it. And so it's really funny because like, for the longest time, I always felt kind of awkward talking about it. I always like, I wouldn't say there was any shame in the name, but it always felt weird that I had to correct people. And I didn't really like the idea of having to correct people. But then you eventually hit a point that you like, you hear your name multiple times pronounced, not how you pronounce it. And, 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 and it, I think it's important kind of going down to like, just again, back to the empowerment thing. It's like, as black and brown folks, like it's important that that we recognize our names and the histories of our names because like the Anglicization, Anglicanization of names is like kind of the beginning of losing your culture. And like for someone like me, like my culture coming from a mixed background of two very different cultures, like that is arguably one of the most important things to me personally. And so um, after a while, it ended up hitting a point where Again, like it's, it's, I don't really have an issue with people mispronouncing my name in the sense that like I get it because of how it's spelled. Um, but at the same time, like for me to be true to my culture and, and to an extent, like sometimes I like explaining the story. Like, yeah, I'm half Indian, half Colombian with an Arabic name pronounced in Spanish. Like, why not? Like it's, it, it's fun. But I think especially as we're, 
if, if, if I want to see myself as a social equity leader in this industry, which is something I, I, I really, really want to be, um, is I have to empower myself first before I can empower anyone else. And your name is like the most important thing that you have to your identity, arguably. And so like for me to empower myself, I think I'm going to start hitting this point of being like, no, like this is how I pronounce my name because this is my identity. Uh, and so I think that's kind of where it came from. It's like really starting to think about it. Like this is this is me. This is my identity. And this is not just a reflection of me, but also my culture and my story. And I think that's worth mentioning, you know. Right. And, and what does the name mean? What is the meaning of it in Arabic? So if I if I am understanding correctly, it actually means laughter, okay. which I really appreciate because um, I do love putting a smile on people's faces. I love joking around, things like that. And so it's something that um, I didn't discover until like a couple, probably like I was like seven or eight years old, still pretty young. But it, when I was really young, I was always trying to be a little entertainer uh, get get laughs out of my family and my parents and it was really funny to find this out later on down the line because I was like wow this actually just works out nicely right and it is dope because your name is what makes you uniquely you right like you mm -hmm. said it's an Arabic name with a with a Hispanic with a Spanish pronouncement um and you know there's there's not another another you out there and like with my name it's definitely like I said it I love I love the purpose and meaning of my name but sometimes it feels like a burden a lot to live up to right when you talk mm -hmm. about a guy with a name with a meaning like that but like, I I love I love that my parents were thoughtful to empower me and give me that man um you know it's definitely been dope um rapping with you man like yeah. what type of advice would you give for like, you know, for other, um, for other people of color that want to pursue opportunities in the cannabis industry, um, or for people that are interested in, you know, getting into ease or, you know, that want to, that want to try to be a part of the program. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, first and foremost, um, this is something that I struggle with a lot, but something that I want to like impart to people is that like, uh, feeling like an imposter in an industry that you deserve to be in is very, is a very easy pitfall to fall into, especially the way that we've seen this industry grow, which is massive amounts of money. And like people like John Boehner who fought his entire political career against cannabis ends up on a big cannabis board. Like those things are discouraging and it's hard to see. But what, what's, what's most important to impart to people is that like your experience the harms that you've endured um, are something that are real. And that this is an industry that even though like we're just starting to build it and create it, that this is in the long term a tool that you can use to help empower your communities. And that's the, again, that's, that's, that's what it comes down to for me. Like I work at this company and work in this industry because I saw a way to empower and impact people directly and if that's something that you're interested in this is an industry that can support that if it comes down to economic empowerment you deserve that that's valid um, people who want to go into this industry to make money that have been harmed by the plan or the criminalization of the plan deserve to be in this industry and so to any of those people that question the motivations as to why they want to be in it or are, are questioning whether or not it's a legitimate industry because of the way that they've seen it be grow. Like the trends are moving in favor of um, the black and brown folks, the LGBTQ plus folks, the women, the underrepresented folks of every other industry are starting to see their place in this industry. And I think like if you're doing it for the right reasons, if you're doing it um, with the right intention and background that like you should be able to do it and be willing to do it. But I also think you will be successful at it. And so that's what I want to impart to people is that like you deserve to be in this industry. And if you're doing it for the right reasons, create a social impact program, talk to a business about why social equity is important and why you can help them build out these programs. That is, I think, a really good way to enter this space because people who are marginalized and people who've been criminalized have a very different perspective and understanding
than people who have never been criminalized that are just executives at a company. And you need to marry those two, those two perspectives. And right now we just have the executive perspective. We need more of that community perspective. And so I'm out here telling you that if, if you're interested, do it, please. We need, we need more. We need more black and brown folks in the industry. We need more diversity. We need all of that. Absolutely, man. And just before I let you roll, man, where, where can people find you like on social media? How can people hook up with you and how can people find ease and where can they learn more about that and momentum? So at ease is the, the handle for our social medias. Um, for me, uh, you could follow me at ishquack. So at I-S-H-Q-U-A-C-K, quack is an old nickname of mine. Um, so you can find me on Instagram on there where I'll be posting about momentum and all of that stuff. Um, anything momentum, any questions people have, please send an email to momentum at ease.com. Um, or you can email me directly as well, isak at ease.com. So that's I-S-H-A-Q at ease.com. Um, and any other questions, you can go to uh, ease.com slash momentum. We have our FAQ on there. We have a few more uh, little tidbits of information. We have a beautiful video about last year's cohort that I highly recommend everyone watch. I challenge you to watch it without crying because, oh my God, it is beautiful. Um, and then you can also find the application there. And applications, once again, they close December 15th. Um, and please feel free to reach out if you have any other questions. Yo, let me just tell y'all, man, this is a, a boss in the industry. He just gave y'all his direct email address. So if you don't <laughs> hit him up, like that's the same one I hit him up on. So you got it, man. It's, it's you know, take advantage of it, man. Eshack, it's been a pleasure, man. Um, any Anything else going on that you want to, you know, drop some more gems before, before you got to roll, man? I mean, I would say this. Um, please check out our... Uh, if, for people that are in California or any place that ease exists, like check out our social equity menu, honestly, like put your money where your mouth is, vote with your dollar, show that you want to be buying social equity weed. Um, and so, so hit up that carousel, buy from any of those brands. Honestly, they're all amazing. The people behind the brands are amazing. And I think you'll be able to see, and this is something that I think people need to change in their mind that social equity businesses aren't just a small business that they are a legit player in this industry and so check out the carousel buy weed from the social equity menu and support small businesses yeah man buy weed from black folks buy weed from brown folks it's holiday man i know you all want to put some weed in your stocking so pick up some cannabis from minorities for for the holidays you know what i'm saying exactly you <laughs> exactly. said it's been a pleasure bro we got to wrap again soon man i'll talk to you soon bro definitely man i appreciate it oh and a big shout out to um to our sponsors forefront man we appreciate y'all for helping us helping us do the show